Morning, everybody. Good to see you all here today. Um, per Larry's uh, request, we've got the uh, um, the speakers set up, and uh, we'll see how this goes. I mean, I know that the room is a little bit echoey. If you are listening to this uh, via the podcast, um, don't know what this is going to be like for your volume settings, so a little bit of a learning curve. Um, but uh, we'll uh, we'll we'll work on this. And so, part of what uh, Part of your job today is for a little bit of feedback as to whether or not the speakers are actually uh, helpful. Um, and uh, uh, I kind of suspect they will be, but uh, at the same time, you know, you know we'll see. I, I don't want to prejudge. Um, if everybody has a handout, uh, we will uh, we'll open with prayer. Working our way through Psalm 119. Well, Lord, you are our portion, and we promise to keep your words, those words that you speak to us in the law and in the gospel, and we entreat your favor with all of our hearts. Be gracious to us according to your promises. When we think on, on our ways, we, we turn our feet back to your testimonies. We hasten, we do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare us, we do not forget your law. At midnight, we rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. And we are a companion to all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach us your statutes. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Uh, as has been my want recently, uh, a little bit of a prolegomena as we get started. I didn't get to talk about confession and absolution at the end of the last session. Um, but this is something that's important as we deal with talking about God's righteousness, talking about how we relate to him. Um, when we think about confession and absolution, this takes place in two formats. And I'm, I'm betting that most of us as Lutherans, many of you who grew up in the Lutheran church, have only experienced one of these two types of confession and absolution. And that's what we call corporate confession and absolution. That's what we do at the beginning of the worship service. And, you know, we can speak together, you know, I'm sinful, my thought, word, and deed, you know, all, all of that stuff. It's this very general uh, confession. But Lutherans also practice private uh, confession and absolution. And when we hear that word private confession and absolution, I'm willing to bet that most of us, you know, think of the Catholic Church and, you know, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been, you know, 400 years since my last confession, um, you know, that, that type of a thing. The main difference being um, in the Catholic Church, that type of confession where you go in and you, you, you speak to the priest, uh, it's required. And in, in the Lutheran Church, it's something that is available if it's desired, if it's wanted. Um, so it actually talks about this in the small catechism. And... Uh, uh, I've already, uh, I've already commented at the end of the early service, and those of you at the late service will probably get an earful on this too. Um, get your catechisms out, people. These are the basics of the faith. And uh, for us, confession is uh, it is just following up on our baptism. It's part of a life of repentance. Yeah, and uh, you know, so when we look at the catechism, we've got the, the Ten Commandments, which speak God's law to us, we've, we've got, they reveal our sin. Uh, then we have the Apostles' Creed, which is the story of who God is and what he's done to, to save us and to make us part of his, his church. Then we have the Lord's Prayer, where we learn how to pray. Baptism, confession and absolution, or you may have learned it as the Office of the Keys, and the Lord's Supper, which are all about how God delivers forgiveness to us. And in that section on confession and absolution, Luther writes this, he says, Before God, we should plead guilty of all sins, even those that we're not aware of, as we do in the Lord's Prayer. 
That's what we do at the beginning of, of worship service. We don't name anything. You know, it, it's, it's like when we pray in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses, for we forgive those who trespass against us. It's just this very general confession and then a very general absolution. You know, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you for all your sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. However, Luther didn't stop there when he was talking about confession and absolution. He also says, but before the pastor, we should confess only those sins which we know and feel in our hearts. So sometimes, sometimes we do things and they sit there in our consciences and they fester. What do you do about that? That's part of my job. You know, that's part of what pastors are supposed to do. Part of our ordination oaths is that we listen to the confessions and we never divulge the sins that are confessed to us. And the heart and the core of the job of a pastor is to speak forgiveness. Um, I had a professor uh, at the, uh, the seminary. Um, I never actually had him as a, as a student, but he was, he was there. And uh, uh, he liked to say that the pastor's superpower is absolution. The authority and the right to say your sins are forgiven. I usually say that the authority of the pastor is something like when I do this, people usually stand up, and when I do that, they usually sit down, but you know. So confession and absolution, they're really, they're really an extension of our baptism. You received Jesus' forgiveness, you were washed of your sin, and that leads us into a life of repentance, confession, and absolution. Always, always those speaking, the speaking of, of the forgiveness of sins. It's central to everything that we do. So, any questions on that as I just put to bed the stuff from the end of last week? All right, very good. Um, so we are working our way through Romans chapter 2. And uh, a major focus of Romans 2 uh, is that Paul... Paul is displaying that his readers are perhaps not as righteous as they think they are. I, I see a typo there. Um, he, he's, he's talking to them about judging others for the same sins that they themselves commit. So I, I thought I'd just start out with a, you know, a, a little bit of a, a question. What is the impact of judging others for the sins that we ourselves commit? What does that do? It diminishes. It diminishes what? Say the question again. I'm a little bit deaf. I'm sorry. Oh, what was the question again? Well, you said it. Um, well, what does uh, what is the impact of judging others for the sins that we ourselves commit? Okay. And kind of, I was thinking it diminishes the, what you do. Okay, it, it diminishes what we do, okay. Yeah. It makes us hypocrites. It makes us hypocrites, okay. And then we've got that guilt on top of everything else because we know that we are. Yeah. It condemns us. It condemns us, yeah. So the issue, the issue of the gospel as being the, the power of God for salvation uh, and the righteousness of God that is real, revealed from faith for faith, that's revealed sola fide, by you know, faith alone, um, it's, it's key as we think about these things in, in several ways. It's key in terms of how we think about our salvation. Because first of all, do we do the things that we say should not be done? Yeah. So when we do that, we, we judge ourselves and we recognize that we need a Savior that is beyond ourselves. Um, when we recognize the gospel at work in our lives, it, it really impacts you know, how and why we worship God. You know, 
go to some other worship services, some other denominations, and you'll see that they do things differently. You know, there are others that are similar, you know, to, to what we do here, um, that are liturgical. Um, but if you go to some other churches, you're going to have a couple of songs, you're going to have about a 45-minute sermon, maybe one or two more songs, and off you go. And you may or may not hear about your sins being forgiven. You, you don't leave our services without hearing about the forgiveness of sins. It's baked into the liturgy, and it is key to what we do. My sermons might feel like they're about 45 minutes long, but in truth, they're very rarely longer than 20, and usually closer to 15. You know, and, and I mean, it's just, it's just a different emphasis because we, we want to take it back to um, forgiveness. It's where we find forgiveness. Well, we find it in the Word, but we also get it in the sacraments. So the Lord's Supper is a huge part of, of our worship service. When we get back to distributing the Lord's Supper the way that we normally would do this, that takes a quarter of the service Maybe, maybe a third, 15 to 20 minutes to, to do that whole part of the service? That, that, that's significant. So this idea that the gospel and God delivering that gospel is, is at the heart of our relationship with him, it's key to how and why we worship. It's our motivation and our conduct. You know, if the power of God is at work in us and the gospel is at work in us from faith for faith, then our motivation is not to earn salvation, but it is a response and, and gratitude to what God has done for us. And lastly, and very importantly, when we have these things at the center of who we are and what we're about, it impacts our witness regarding what God has done for us. You know, sometimes when people talk about their witness, they talk about how um, God turned their life around, he helped them to re, you know, realize things. Uh, sometimes when people talk about what is the value of church, they talk about how it orders my week, uh, it gives me a, a boost of encouragement, or it, it helps me to get on my ethical road. All of which are fine, but that's not the heart and the core of what we are about, and it's not what we are advertising. You know, we are about delivering Jesus' forgiveness even to people who don't do the things they say. So Paul wants us to, to confront and remove all forms of righteousness that detract from the righteousness that comes sola fide. And he's just going to continue to tear at that uh, as we go through the book. So we are on Romans 2, 17. We'll do 17 through 24 in a lump, and then we'll, uh, God willing, get to, uh, to 25 through 29 as well. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of the Lord is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. As Christians, I think it's probably fairly important for us to look at this and, and uh, um, 
He begins with this question, but if you who call yourself Jews and rely on the law and boast in God, um, you know, I know that there has been history with who, among Christians have said, yeah, the Jews, they're the bad guys in the whole thing. Paul is not writing to um, denigrate Jewish people. He is Jewish. He's saying, you are the people who have received God's word. You are the people who have received the commandments, who have seen God's grace. What are you doing with that? So when we read this, I think that it is legitimate for us to say, you know, to think about the, the, the question, what if he had written it in this way? But if you call yourself a Christian and rely on the law and boast in God, Etc. Because he's speaking to us here. And the things that are being said here, we need to look at these and apply them to ourselves, our context, our situation. Because how is it that you came to have a right relationship with God? How did it happen? How did you get a right relationship with God? God Your baptism? What'd you say? God chose us. And that's the same story for Israel. You know, back to the catechism, when we talk about the, the work of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit calls, gathers, and enlightens the whole Christian church on earth. Well, God called, gathered, and enlightened the people of Israel as well. Israel's relationship with God is rooted in love, grace, and salvation. Not in keeping the law. Did I just say that keeping the law is not important? I did not say that. But I'm saying that when it comes to our relationship with God... Our relationship with him is completely and totally dependent on his grace, on his love. And the same was true for Israel. The same is true for all people. So look in the Old Testament. I got a couple of passages here. Uh, in Deuteronomy 7, verses 7 through 8. This is Moses speaking on God's behalf to the people of Israel. He says, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So in other words, God did not choose Israel because of anything they had to offer him. It wasn't because they were so great. It wasn't because they were so mighty. It wasn't because they, they did so many good things that would help him to accomplish his purposes and mission. It was out of his love. That's it. Then in Malachi... So we go from the front part of the Old Testament to the back part of the Old Testament. In Malachi, uh, Malachi speaks God's word to the people. He says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, that would be the Israelites, therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? He consistently calls his people back to them, back to himself, recognizing they do not keep his law. But he does not change. His love does not change. His mercy does not change. And therefore, he continues to call them back in repentance in order to give them forgiveness. And then another passage from, from Deuteronomy, 
uh, chapter 4, uh, verses 27 through, through 31. He writes, this is Moses again writing on, on you know, the word of the Lord. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. Why? Well, he's prophesying that they are going to go chasing after other idols, chasing after other gods, and God is going to send them into slavery and into exile. And uh, so he's speaking to them about that. He says, and there, when, when you are in exile, you will serve gods of wood and stone, the work of human hands that neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God and will find him. If you search after him with all your heart and with all your soul, when you are in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. The fact that they can return, the fact that they can call him out is in his faithfulness and in his mercy and his compassion on them, that he continually leaves that door open for them to to come back to him. So how much more for us is our relationship with God rooted in love, grace, and salvation? Because the Israelites did not have Jesus. They did not have the cross yet. They did not have the resurrection. And you and I, we have seen the fullness of God's salvation. And that becomes our our motivation as we, we deal with his word and with his law. And it becomes part of our, how we relate to, to other people. So, go back through this with me. In, in verse 19, he, he says, uh, having been persuaded that you yourself are a guide to the blind. He says some more things behind that. I think he's being a little bit smart-mouthed with them here. You think you understand all of this stuff. You think you've got this all figured out. You have been persuaded, and and it is a passive, you know, in uh, the the English Standard Version, uh, it it says, if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, it's a passive that says, if you have been persuaded. I think that's significant because... Who would persuade us to think such a thing about ourselves? What's that? The devil. The devil. Yeah. He, he's always out there tempting us to think more of ourselves than really we should. You're so good. You're so much better than all these other Joes. Yeah. We've got it all figured out. Obviously. What other voice might be speaking to us that we've got it all figured out. Our own. Our own, yeah. That part inside of us that is always, I like to call it the inner traitor. It's that old sinful nature that clings to us and makes us think that we are more than we are apart from Christ. Now, when we're connected to Christ, there's a whole, whole host of other things that are opened up to us uh, in love and in humility. But when we become persuaded that we ourselves are the guide for the blind and the teachers of the young and all of these things, we're, we're being led into temptation. Did I just say that as Christians we have nothing to teach children or to help the blind to see? No, I'm just saying it's not ours in and of ourselves. 
and understanding when we, when we deal with other people and, and we act as a guide or as a teacher, that this is an act of, of, it should be an act of humility and the words that are spoken are not our words, they're somebody else's words, they're God's words that, that we're seeking to deliver faithfully to them. He, he says, in, in verse 20, um, pages are stuck together, hold on. In verse 20, it talks about being an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, and having, the, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Um, when I was translating that, it, when it says the embodiment of the truth uh, and, and knowledge, it would be having or, or holding the essential features of, of knowledge and truth. Or, or maybe another way to say is that you, know, you feel like you have the complete expression of knowledge and truth in the law. But is the law the complete expression of knowledge and truth? Is it the full message of God's work in our lives? No, it's, it's not. You know, is the law an essential feature of God's word? Yeah, we need it. But is it the complete expression? No, God speaks two words to us. He speaks the law and the gospel. And only one of them actually reveals who God is to us in his fullness, and that's the gospel. So in John 14, verse 6, very famous passage, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Apart from Jesus, we don't have the fullness of truth. In 1 John chapter 4, there's some really good stuff about this in 1 John. I would invite you to open your Bibles and to take a look at this with me. Hebrews, James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. 1st John chapter 4. So take a look through this really quickly um, while I pick up my papers that I just dropped all over. Especially verse 8. What important thing do we learn in verse 8 about God? Hmm? God is love. Now, God gave us the law because of his love for us, but do we usually experience the commandments as love? We don't. We usually experience them as condemnation and judgment. It's only in Jesus that we really begin to experience God as love. And then back in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verses uh, 17 through 18, uh, it, it says that uh, the law comes through Moses. Grace and truth are revealed by Jesus. We, we don't have the full expression of God's word just in the law, nor is it just merely in our ethics or our, our self-defined righteousness. We need a righteousness that comes from the outside, which is connected to who Jesus is and what he has done for us. And then again in Galatians chapter 3, Verses 21 through 27. It says, In the law, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. 
For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under the sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith could be, would be revealed. So then, the law was our, our guardian. Uh, the word there means um, teacher. Uh, it, it means, uh, you got to think like, like really old school, the kind of teacher, like a tutor that you would live with and would you know, take a, a, a child and raise them. Uh, so the law was our guardian until Christ Jesus came in order that we might be justified by faith. And now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. But in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. And that you are all sons of God. Uh, that's actually an important part of the translation because under Roman law, women did not um, get inheritances generally. And uh, Paul wants to make it clear, doesn't matter what your actual uh, gender is, uh, because he goes on to say there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's saying this salvation is for everyone. And you all inherit just like the sons. So this, this idea that we have everything we need in the law, it's incorrect. The law as we see it, as we simple people see it, is an incomplete picture of who God is and what his will is for us. And that's largely because we've shifted the law off of its foundation of being an expression of his love for us to making it a means for us to satisfy God and to earn our own salvation. Any, any comments or questions on that so far? Okay. So then verses 21 through 23, they suggest a, a, a series of hypocrisies that are part of our lives that dishonor God. And, uh, and he says, starting with, with verse 21, he says, um, Therefore, uh, the one teaching another, uh, do you teach yourself? Are these the things that, that you, you're actually reminding yourself? Is this part of your life? Is this part of your faith and, and your relationship with God and, and how you live? The one preaching, do not steal, or the one preaching to not steal, uh, do you steal? The one saying, uh, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Yeah, the, the, one, uh, the one abhorring, detesting, the one who, who loathes uh, idols. Are you removing sacred property from sacred places? In each of these, he's challenging us to look at what is our profession in regard to how we actually act. So, what you're teaching, is that part of your life? If you say, don't steal, are you ethical in all of your business dealings and, and in how you treat other people's property? If you say don't commit adultery, do you? Yeah. Um, in thinking about the Sermon on the Mount, you know, the man who looks with lust in his heart at a woman, you know, it's not just, you know, did you sleep with someone else? It's getting at the attitudes of your heart. Um, so you detest idols. You, you, you hate other religions because, you know, they take people away from God or, or whatever. 
are you doing anything to speak out about that, to, to lead people away from these religions and into the truth? And Paul points out that as we boast about the law, as, as the people that he's talking to, includes us, uh, boast about the law, often we find out that we are also the ones who are disobedient to the law. So in the end, what, what, is, what is the righteousness? It can't be in what we're doing because if the law is the righteous standard, we're not living up to it. And he says, the name of the Lord is blasphemed because of this, because of what you're doing. And I was like, well, it says, that, you know, this is, this is a citation from Scripture. Where? And uh, if you've got a study Bible, it, you know, they give you really helpful things. And it, it turns out in the margin of my study Bible that it says that this is from Isaiah chapter 52, verse 5. So I looked up Isaiah 52, verse 5. And um, it, it says something a little bit different. I was like, wait a second. So if, if you look up uh, Isaiah 52, verse 5, uh, in the English Standard Version, it says, Continually, all the day, my name, God's name, uh, is despised. I was like, that's, that's, okay, the idea is there, but, but it's not the same thing. You know, he says he's quoting scripture. What, I'm like, oh, what's going on? I know what I'll do. I'll look at the Hebrew, because maybe the Hebrew helps me to understand um, why Paul said it the way he said it. Except that um, the Hebrew says something along the lines of, continually all the day my name is being scorned or treated with contempt. Uh, which actually fits better with the, uh, the English Standard Version. I was like, oh, where, where is this whole, um, um, you know, blasphemed and, and everything else? Well, it's in a translation of the Old Testament that's called the Septuagint. Um, if you look at the bottom of that second page, uh, I translated this uh, from, from, the, uh, from the Greek. It says, because of you, through all the day, my name is blasphemed among the nations or among the Gentiles. And you see behind there, it's got Roman numerals LXX. Um, it, that means uh, 70. And there is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament that was done by Jewish scholars in Egypt long, long time ago. And the story goes like this. 70 scholars went into 70 rooms and they transferred, they, they translated the Old Testament and they all matched. Thanks be to God. Now, I kind of doubt the mythology on that. Um, but at the same time, knowing that the Old Testament was translated by a group of Jewish scholars for their Greek-speaking um, believers, I think that that is actually very valuable. And it becomes a very valuable tool. But one of the things that we see in, in this passage is uh, as you get away from the text, things start to blur a little bit. And uh, the, the idea, the concept is not significantly different, uh, but you have a couple little things that get added in there, uh, you know, and just, just change it just a little bit. Did anybody see in the news the stuff about the, the Dead Sea Scrolls discoveries this past week? Yeah. You know, there, there's, there's some pretty amazing stuff going on in terms of uh, our understanding of what the, the original texts say, because we don't have any of these. What we have is copies upon copies upon copies. Translations. And, you know, and so what we have in front of us I, is very reliable. It, it's great scholarship went into this, and, and we have a huge amount of witness about it. But sometimes we find things like this where it says that the name of the Lord is blasphemed um, all the day, and why is it different? And, and you start looking and saying, oh, there are little things that come in here and there. And, uh, and I think it's good to understand that uh, you know, these are things that are handed down across generations for us. And you know, people have walked in this faith long before we did. 
And they have thought about these things long before we did. And there, there are all kinds of, of, of copies and stuff that are out there. Yes, Larry. Shouldn't this scare us a little bit in view of how God's name is treated in our modern cultures? No. And I'll tell you why. Okay. Um, when you look at just the incredible preponderance of evidence, um, the amount of evidence that we have uh, for the biblical text, particularly the New Testament, uh, is just unbelievable. You know, so does anybody here not believe that there was a guy named Socrates? Does anybody here not believe that there was a guy named Socrates? Was there a guy named Socrates a long time ago? We only have a few documents that ever attest to that. They're all written by Plato. And, um, uh, and we have nothing of his original works or anything like that. And yet nobody doubts, you know, that this very few amount of, of testimonies about this individual. When you come to the New Testament, the, the amount of, of textual copies and, and, and everything else that, that we can look back and we can compare and we can see how incredibly consistent across centuries it is, it really should comfort us. Well, I'm sorry, you must have misinterpreted my... I'm sorry. I referred to the way God's name is treated in, in our culture. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, I, I really did miss... Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's common. I mean, it, it, it's, it's used in uh, every deprecating way you yeah. think of. Absolutely. But it's not just the, the, the saying of the words. So I, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine uh, over lunch a while back about bad language, four letter words. I'm much more offended when somebody says, you know, Jesus Christ, than I am when somebody drops an F-bomb. I'm, I'm much more bothered by, by oh my God, than O-S-H-I-T. Right. You know, it, 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 I, you know and, and, and he was kind of confused by that. We talked it through a little bit. Um, and, and he's like, well, why can't I just do that then? I'm like, well, it does say in Ephesians, you know, let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. You know, and you know, in, in the spirit of you know what we just read, you know, I am a hypocrite. Um, so, uh, nothing like being called out by your kids, you know, for or ratted out, as the case is sometimes. My dad says these things. Great. There goes the, uh, the mystique. Anyhow, um, but when we look at when we look at the issue of blasphemy, blaspheming God is not just merely misusing his name. It's also, uh, it's also found in how we teach what his word says. And it's also in how we ourselves live in light of that word. So when you say, um, should we be concerned that God's name is being blasphemed? Yes. And I think that, uh, I think that when we look at the world, we are, we are reaping fruit of our blasphemy. And when I, say, when I say that we're reaping fruit of our blasphemy, I mean the church's blasphemy and the way that the church has, has turned away from God's word and um, just tried to sweep it away in some instances or not live up to it, both of which are huge problems. Now, did I just say that you know, God no longer loves us and there's no forgiveness, there's no salvation for us? No. But I am saying that I do think that there are negative consequences that we are experiencing in the world because of that. And that should concern us. 
And where should that concern lead us? I think it should lead us to prayer, to repentance, to absolution, and, uh, and, and back to the Word. To say, what does it say? What does it teach us? Where are God's promises? What do those promises then uh, impact our lives in terms of how we relate to our neighbors? So, yeah. Yeah, just uh, two of these, two of the readings are just dead center. And when you witness to someone else, um, and especially, you know, I am the way and the light and the truth, I'm the only way to God. Yeah. That's very hard for a lot of people to understand. It's, yeah. it's intolerant, right? Uh, you get that a lot. Like, you know, yeah. Almost like, who are you to represent such a narrow way? Of, yeah. And then the other one is God's love. It's just, you know, when, I think everybody struggles with their sin, and as long as you continue to struggle with it, repent, and grow, right? Um, but when you succumb to it, and you accept it as it's just the way it is, and that gets difficult, and when you see our government do that, and then you speak out about it, now you're tolerant. God is love. Yeah. You know, it's, these are just, it's funny, they, these are probably the two most common things that I face when you try to do yeah. Yeah. You know, so that gets thrown on top of our, our hypocrisy, and you know, it, because we all have it in our lives, and uh, it, it becomes very difficult. But at the end of the day, are these things about us and our performance, or is our faith and hope and confidence in Christ and what He can do through, or maybe despite? us you know and uh and so i think i think one of the places that the church has kind of messed up on our witness is uh, and i'm not i don't i don't mean us specifically here necessarily I, i'm talking very broadly on this point um that uh um so what is it that you want to present about jesus and what we have largely presented is uh I didn't know him before, but now my life is better because I know him. Um, my life was a mess before, and now I'm less of a mess now. And I'm not saying that those things can't happen. I'm saying they're not the main point. The main point is in the forgiveness of sins. And so people look at the church, and even from within the church, we feel this pressure to you know, go out and you know, we're going to feed the hungry. You know, We're going to... Um, dress the, the naked and, and, and all of these things. Um, we're going to speak up for justice. All good and right. But the main thing that we have to offer the world is Christ crucified. And so Christ crucified spoken into the issues of justice are hugely important. Uh, the ELCA put out a statement, uh, this, I think that was this week, somebody sent it to me, uh, about... Um, Oh, I can't remember what the title was, but basically it was speaking out against um, against racism and and um, uh, white supremacy. And uh, as I read it through, I didn't disagree with anything that that Bishop Eaton you know, wrote in there in terms of the problems. But she never offers the solution. The solution is that, you know, we are all forgiven in Christ and we are connected in him. You know, there is no Jew, no Greek, no, no Scythian, no barbarian, slave, free. You are all one in Christ. We, we're all in this forgiveness together. And, and that then binds us in a whole different way as we see ourselves as creatures, as we see ourselves as redeemed, as we see ourselves as temples of the Holy Spirit. And there's this incredible commonality that we have in Jesus. And too much of the church never gets to that. It's always about, you know, well, do better. And I'm not saying don't do better, but you, you gotta have the right foundation for doing better. And, and apart from Christ, the forgiveness, the new life, we won't. We won't. 
I don't know how long people have been around. You know, I, I, I'll leave that to the anthropologists and other people to argue about, but I can tell you that in, in the scope of history that I see and I understand, um, people have oppressed and harmed people forever. And um, understanding who we are in Christ is a huge motivation to stop and to honor one another. So, anything else? Because I got something horrible to finish with. <laughs> and I think I can do it. Ready? Romans 2, 25 through 29. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, not, well, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So, circumcision. I love it when this comes up in confirmation class. Dead silence. <laughs> Circumcision is given to God's people in Genesis 17, 1 through 14, as part of the, uh, the covenant with Abraham. And so God tells him that, uh, that he and his children should be circumcised. The Hebrew word there, uh, the word mul, literally just means cut off. And then in the, the next verse, he clarifies that what is to be cut off is the flesh uh, of your plural uh, foreskin. So he's, you know, it's Abraham, his sons, and all the, uh, the, the, the men that uh, are connected to him. You know, so cut off. The, uh, the word in Greek, that we, the words we have here in front of us in Romans, uh, peritome means circumcision just literally means cut around. That's, that's the word. And everybody understands what's being cut around. Um, what I find a little bit fascinating is the word for uncircumcision is acrobustia. Peritome is the word in Greek for circumcision. The word for uncircumcision is acrobustia. They're unrelated. Because acrobustia, literally, um, what, what's the big town just to the south of us, the, the county seat for Akron? Acro? It means hill, high place. Bustia means uh, the end. So he's talking about kind of the end of the high part of the whole thing. And by extension, foreskin. And next time you go to Akron. <laughs> so, this became the, the sign of the covenant. Why? Why circumcision? Oh, and by the way, when, when, when he's, he, he's talking about circumcision, and he's literally calling them foreskins. Which seems a little bit rude to me. But... Um, why circumcision? The covenant of circumcision comes to us as part of the covenant of Abraham, which we can read about in Genesis 15, 16, and 17, particularly 15 and 17. So in, in chapter 15, Abram is still Abram. In 17, his name gets changed to Abraham. So God makes a covenant with, with Abram, and uh, he makes this promise. And unlike most covenants, in, in that time in history, covenants were usually done weaker to stronger. 
All the consequences would fall on the weaker if the, the covenant was broken. God does it in reverse. He puts himself on the line and he makes this agreement with the weaker. He makes it with Abram. And God promises some things to Abram or Abraham. He promises the land that you're on will belong to your children. He promises you will have a son. Anybody remember how old Abram was when he left Hebron? No, not, no, he was 75 when he left Hebron. Anybody remember how old he was when Isaac was born? 9,900, somewhere right in there. He was over 100 when he died. And he had more kids after Isaac. And he was also promised that his descendants would be a blessing to all the nations. So of those three promises, the land, a son, and a blessing to all the nations. At the time that the covenant was, was ratified with him, what did he actually have in hand? Nothing. Everything was about a promise that he could only look out to the future and, and see. So in Genesis 15, God makes this promise to Abram. And in chapter 16, they still don't have a child, so Sarah says to Abram, hey, why don't you sleep with Hagar and see if she'll conceive for me? And she did. And had a son, Ishmael, and it's a huge mess, as one might expect. And then in 17, he re-speaks the covenant, and this time he institutes Circumcision as part of it. And for my money, circumcision is the visible sign of the invisible promise. It's easy to forget promises. But Abram's children will inherit the land. Abraham and Sarah will beget a son in the natural way. This covenant connects God's promises uh, to faith, but also to sex, to faithfulness, to hope for salvation, to life, knowing that, that there was temptation here too. And so he puts that promise, the, the, the visible sign of that promise, where Abraham and his sons will see it often. And puts a mark in their flesh in a way that is to be like, oh, that means God has made these promises to me and my people. So belief in the promise is more than an outward act. So this idea of circumcision becomes an outward image of something that's supposed to happen inwardly. And in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 16, Moses speaks to the people. He says, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. And in chapter 30, verse 6, he says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your lives. So what's he talking about here? He's talking about exposing the sensitive part of what's inside of us and removing the protective covering that we would use to keep God away so that we receive God's promises with faith. pull away that which would, would, would keep us away from, from, from that sensitivity that is inside of us. To remove the barrier that would keep God away from our hearts so that he's actually working in us. And it's talking about repentance. Yeah, Kathy? Um, the thought that I just had to uh, this as far as circumcision of the heart now includes women. Yes. 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Women are included in the covenant, but it's through their male relatives, particularly the husband. Um, but, uh, but yes, this now is everyone when we start talking about circumcising hearts because we all have those. And there is, there is one last part of this that um, I'm just going to mention. Uh, I remember in health class, you know, being talked about you know, this whole circumcision issue, not, not theologically, obviously, but, uh, but biologically. And uh, one of the things that they talked about in terms of sexual health was that uh, you've got to keep that area clean because you know, dirt and bacteria can build up in there. And the circumcision of your heart removes that which would keep the dirt and the bacteria of your sin close to you. And in a sense, it becomes an image of God cleaning us as well. And, uh, and I think it's an important um, symbol for repentance. And repentance being um, key to our relationship with God. All right, we're out of time. Um, I told you I was going to end on something horrible. You're welcome. And... Uh, God's blessings on your week.